Welcome to Archaeoed, a podcast about the civilizations of the ancient Americas. You know, the ones that Western history books spend about a page discussing. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnhart. I've been an archaeologist, an explorer, and a seeker of esoteric knowledge all around the Americas for over 30 years now. This podcast is just me, freed from the lecture podium and talking like we're just having a beer together. Sometimes I'll tell stories of my adventures. Other times I'll share what I've learned about the various cultures that were here before Columbus. Basically, it'll be anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast, Beholden to No One. I'm just having fun with it. I hope you do too. So without further ado, kick back, relax, and let's get started. Season 4, Episode 6, Mapping Palenque, Part 2. So I ended last episode with the death of Linda Sheely. She was my mentor, my muse, and my mapping project was the last project she'd ever support. If I hadn't felt any pressure already, now I couldn't fail. This project was now tied to her legacy. That same week, my first planned crew volunteer arrived, Barry Nowlin. Barry and I had become friends years back working contract archaeology jobs in Texas, and he had helped me map Mashna, too. He had a military background and tours of duty in the jungles of Central America, so he knew how to handle himself in the jungle. Most importantly, he worked for just food and lodging. I had a project budget, but nothing for salaries. That was actually against the rules of my FAMSI grant. At the time, I might have been embarrassed to admit that I had a tiny crew of only volunteers and even a random traveler I met in Palenque. But now that I've pulled it off so well, that's become a point of pride. A few dedicated people did an impossible job. My survey training was complete, I knew how to work the mapping creation software, and my goals were defined. For this first 1998 season, I would map everything in between the Otulum and Motiapa rivers. I gave a dramatic speech to my crew, who were all of three people at the time, Barry Nallen, Steve Seamer, and Elizabeth Corrin. I said... There have been repeated attempts to map Palenque for over a hundred years now, and no one has been able to make a complete map. Some projects were stopped by politics, others by time and money. But most of all, they failed because this is such a hard job to do. We will not be stopped, no matter what. We will work hard every day, we will keep our heads down, and say as little as we can about our progress. And with that call to arms, we got mapping. The very next day, the ruins caught on fire. In fact, all of Chiapas was on fire. 1998 was a year of terrible drought for Chiapas. The annual slash-and-burn farming practiced by the Maya turned into raging wildfires. Remember when the smoke from Mexico reached all the way to New York? That was Chiapas. By early May, it had reached Palenque. The Mexican army was called in to fight the fire, and the ruins were closed for tourism. Did we stop mapping? Hell no. I had just said that nothing would stop us. 
I didn't expect the first challenge to be fire, but so be it. The smoke was thick, so thick that sometimes the laser would diffract before reaching the prism and we'd have to wait to get the shot. The crew was mad at me for staying, and in retrospect, I should have just chilled, but I didn't. To make matters worse, I chose the area right behind the old museum and field camp structures for our next area to map. It dropped off a cliff right there, and decades of trash covered in thick vegetation piled up at its base. Rusty appliances, broken furniture, black trash bags, rubble piles, you name it, it was heaped down there. So now we were wading through trash and choking on thick smoke. We also found two eight-foot-long lances in the piles that week. I flopped down onto my bed each night that week thinking, do I have the strength to do this job? I almost cracked. But luckily, some wonderful things happened around then as well. One of them was Chris Powell inviting me to establish the footprint of El Panchan's restaurant called Don Mucho's. Chato was going to run it. He named it Don Mucho's because that was the Morales children's nickname for their father, Moises. They called him Don Mucho because he was honestly a lot. Chris had agreed to lay out the ground plan using the ancient Maya geometry he was studying. It was to be a square with two golden mean rectangles created from its center point, stretching out on two sides. I helped Chris lay it out, and then the Lachandone Maya who sold souvenirs in the ruins parking lot came and made offerings to its four corners and its center. Chris had invited them, and to both of our surprises, they showed up. Today, Don Muchos has capacity for over 200 people, and it's the most popular restaurant in all of Palenque. I was just there last week, and I can still see the cement boundaries of the first little restaurant we placed there. And we still joke with Chato that that's the reason that the restaurant is such a success. Back in the ruins, the smoke eventually cleared and we got through the trash. The adjacent area was Blom's Group A later designated Groups 1 and 2. Our friendship with the Machete crew, being Manuel Cruz and Rogelio Lopez, was growing. They taught us lots of Maya words, things like Nauyaka, that's the Celtal word for fair to lance, and Quetzil, the word for smoke. Rogelio said he could catch any bird. I doubted him, so he proved it. He pulled some very thin, long roots out of the ground and made a little rope with a noose at the end. Then he laid it flat on a log, holding the long end in his hand. He placed a piece of his corn masa lunch in front of the little noose and then started making bird calls. I laughed because it looked ridiculous. But then a bird landed and he caught it by the leg in the little root noose. He gently picked it up and showed it to me, close up. Then he opened up his hand and gave it a little pat, and it flew away. I was shocked. In fact, every time I tell that story, I wonder if people think I'm lying. But it really happened. He really could catch any bird. 
As a side note, I ran into Rogelio last week, selling souvenirs in the shade of the Temple of the Sun at Palenque. I bought a doll from him, for my daughter, and I told her its name was Rogelia. I took a picture with him that day, and I'll post it in the show notes just for fun. So, we were finding all these never-before-mapped buildings. Establishing a way to give each one a unique name and designation was very important. Over the decades, previous publications had used various building designation systems. Some used Roman numerals, others romantic names like Temple of the Jaguars, and others used alphabetic letters for whole groups. It was a mess. Which should I follow? Before the project had started, I decided to go with the system of the oldest, most complete map of the ruins, published by Franz Blom in 1923. He assigned whole groups alphabetic names, like Group A, Group B, Group C, etc. We were mapping Blom's Group A, but the biggest, already consolidated part was now called Groups 1 and 2. My decision was to lump Groups 1 and 2 into Group A and give each building a unique alphanumeric name. Buildings A1, A2, A3, etc. Group A ended up having 51 buildings, including those in Group A and within that Group 1 and 2. I still said Group 1 and 2 on the map, but I now designated each one of those individual buildings within it with an A number name. I've since been occasionally criticized for that decision, but I maintain that it was the best fit for the disjointed previous literature corpus. Two other things quickly became apparent. Huge areas of terracing and many looted tomb chambers. The terracing was built as the foundations for the buildings, like huge stairs stepping down the mountainside. A single terrace could be meters tall and stretch out for hundreds of meters. Despite their massive size, I couldn't give them just a single building name because they held many buildings. And they also interlocked with each other at corners and other complex ways. In the end, I just mapped them and drew them in without designations. In total, we mapped 16 linear kilometers of terracing within the city. And in truth, those are the biggest constructions of the city. I lament that I never came up with a better way to quantify them, but each was built into the mountainside, making determining their actual volume impossible without excavation. The other issue was looted and or collapsed tombs. Just in Group A, we saw five. Should I record them on the map? If I did, would it become a treasure map for more looting? I decided not to, but I did mention each one in my notes. That way, Ina had a report, but it wouldn't end up on the internet. The internet, which barely existed at the time. Well, okay, this is a good moment for my first commercial break. When I return, I'll tell you about our side adventure to the ruins of Piedras Negras. Did you know that family travel has the incredible power to shape our children's worldview and create lasting memories? 
In a world where representation is often lacking, it's essential for our children to see themselves reflected in every aspect of life, including the stories we tell about travel. Introducing the Travel of Legacy podcast, where we're rewriting the script by celebrating the diverse voices of black and brown family travelers. Each episode of Travel of Legacy is a testament to the enriching power and the joy of exploration in black and brown communities. So journey with us and subscribe now. By now, anyone listening knows how deeply involved I am in Maya calendar studies. I've made a website, an iPhone app, an annual wall calendar, and now I'm thrilled to announce the most complex Maya calendar tool I've ever made, barsanddots.com. I didn't actually make it, more like commissioned it. The coding was done by software engineer Matt Neal, and that code was based on the original Bars and Dots program created by Sid Hollander in the 1980s. Bars and Dots is the most sophisticated Maya calendar conversion program ever made, and it's free for anyone to use. And guess what? This is the 13th commercial I've made. That's got to be a good Maya calendar omen, right? Just log on to barsanddots.com and start playing with it. The city center of Palenque sits upon a flat plateau about 50 meters above the plains. Those plains continued north about 70 kilometers all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. That plateau was only about 100 meters wide, but the Palencanos extended it out in places by building terraces. Above the plateau, the mountainside climbs another 400 meters or so to a ridge top that then drops off the other side into the Chacamox River Valley. That's where the Macheteros were from, a little village called Naranjo, and they would climb up and over those mountains every morning just to meet me for work. Barry called the location the military crest of the mountain, a naturally defensive piece of terrain. Their elevation allowed them to see many kilometers out to the north and provided high ground against any enemy attacking from that direction. To the south, the mountaintop ridge did the same. Sentries there could see an army attacking from that direction as well. Group A was located on the steep slopes below the city's main plaza, with the Otulum waterfalls on its eastern boundary. We mapped down through Group A to the foothills, where the land was flat and much easier to survey. Well, sort of. What we found there was a mango tree grove covering an area of about a football field. Strangely, there were no ancient structures, not one. I suspect that it was once a cornfield or perhaps a fruiting tree grove like today. We did find one building, but it was the ruins of a modern house. Chato told me that when he was a boy in the 1960s, it was a cattle farm and the house belonged to a man named De La Croix. Mapping the mango grove was easy except for one thing, the mangoes. By dumb luck, we were there during mango season, and they were falling from the trees like rain. Ripe ones would explode on the ground and attract hordes of flies. The rotted sweet smell and clouds of bugs made it hard to breathe. 
so we wore bandanas on our faces. But the real trouble was protecting the theodolite. If a ripe mango hit it and the juices got inside, the project was over. So I borrowed a patio table umbrella from the project house and hired Manuel's brother, Gilberto, to stand there all day and hold it over the machine. The entire project went that way. New area, different challenge, different solution. This particular place called for bandanas and a patio umbrella. Just as we were wrapping up the area that we called Los Mangos, the crew from the Piedras Negras project showed up with the president of BYU. Steve Houston was the co-director of the Piedras Negras project, and he was teaching at BYU, hence the president's visit. Also in the visiting group were my good friends Mark and Jessica Child. I had worked with them in Copan three years earlier, and this was really the first time I had seen them again. Mark was hurt. He had fallen into a sinkhole at Piedras Negras and broken a few ribs. Nevertheless, he was walking around like it hadn't happened. He was the crew chief of Piedras Negras's 80 Maya workers, and he didn't have time to be hurt. I was asked to lead the presidential group on a tour of Palenque. No one in Palenque's administration spoke English, so they often asked Chris Powell or I to guide important foreign visitors. That happened all the time, and it was a fun bonus to leading the mapping project. I led them around that day and was invited to a fancy dinner that evening. At dinner, Mark invited Barry and I to visit Piedras Negras for a special event. Mark had excavated a sweat bath with its roof still intact. That next week, he was going to attempt to fire it up, actually use the sweat bath as an experimental archaeological project. Naturally, we accepted. Two days later, we drove across the Usamacinta River to Tenosique and then the trailhead. To this day, there are no roads to Piedras Negras. You can either take the river to the site through some intense whitewater patches, or you can walk 20 kilometers in from a village just south of Tenosique. We were walking. We had a bunch of supplies for the project and loaded them onto horses. Mark, his broken ribs still aching, also rode a horse so as not to slow down our pace. It took about four hours, and then we were at the impressive field camp. It had tents and facilities for over a hundred people. Water was pumped up 70 meters from the river below. Mark had built the system with a half a kilometer of plastic tubing. It was really pretty ingenuitive of him. Since it was a BYU Mormon project, crew members had no access to caffeine or alcohol. At Mark's suggestion, we brought in two cases of Cokes, a few bottles of rum, and a bottle of tequila for the non-Mormon crew members. As you might imagine, there was much rejoicing. It was almost night by the time we arrived, so we quickly found our places in tents and had dinner with the entire crew. The kitchen was set up on top of a cliff above the Usamacinta River, with a commanding view. As the sun set, it became apparent that the entire western bank of the river, the Chiapas side, was on fire. It glowed and faintly crackled all night, like a creepy nightlight. Back at the tents, we played cards and drank for a bit, then headed to bed. 
It was a long day, and I was exhausted. But about midnight, Zack Ruby showed up at the mesh window of my tent with the bottle of tequila in his hand. He said, Ed, get up and come down to the river with me. I want to draw some of the carvings down there, and I need someone to hold the flashlight. That was a crazy idea. So, of course, I got up and followed him down to the river. We arrived to a big, flat rock, maybe 20 by 20 feet. Carved into it were these repeating swirl symbols. They were very faded, the kind of carvings that you see best with raking flashlight, hence the reason we were doing it at night. We were there for about an hour, drawing and passing the tequila bottle back and forth for manly swigs. The Usama was rushing by. It's a very dangerous river. It's deep, and whirlpools or eddies spontaneously form and pull things down. Just the week before, a worker had swum too far out and was sucked into one. His body was found days later and kilometers down the river. Zack and I were discussing whether the swirls we were drawing could be whirlpool danger markers when a loud crash came from the bushes. We both froze and stared, but heard nothing else. We went back to drawing, but then we heard it again, a little softer, but much closer this time. It was definitely something big in the woods, and it was probably looking at us. We nervously discussed what it could be. Maybe it's a pig or a tapir? But we both knew it could also be a jaguar. It only moved when we weren't watching, which further scared us. We sat there for another 30 minutes, drinking the rest of the tequila for courage. Finally, we leapt up and ran up the trail as fast as we could. And we made it. Nothing jumped us. We'll never know. But I'm pretty sure that a jaguar let us live that night. The next morning we had a tour of the site. The temples and still-standing stila were amazing. Steve Houston had brought the ashes of Titania Perskuryakov and buried them atop PN's tallest temple. Her ashes had been in the basement of the Peabody Museum for decades, so it was emotional to see her laid to rest in a place she loved. After lunch, we hiked to the sinkhole that Mark had fallen into. On the way, we passed a massive sculpture of a turtle carved into a cliffside. The rulers of Piedras Negras's dynasty were called the Ak family, and we know that from the hieroglyphs. Ak means turtle, so this was probably some big, beautiful family crest of the ruling family. When we arrived to the sinkhole, I was shocked. Mark hadn't fallen into a little hole. This was 800 feet across and 200 feet deep. We could see the tops of trees growing from the bottom. They looked tiny from our perch. The crew told us the tale of Mark's fall. They were surveying one misty morning, Mark in the lead, and then he just disappeared. Steps further forward, the rest of the crew saw the edge of the sinkhole, with the trees far below them. Surely he was dead. They called out, Mark! And from the bottom, he weakly replied, I'm good. In an insane turn of luck, he hit the tops of the trees first, and as he broke through the branches, they slowed him enough to break his fall onto the ground. Two hundred feet, and all he had was broken ribs. 
Hours later, they rappelled down and hauled him out. Barry and I set up my camera timer to take a photo of us standing at the edge of the crater. But just as I got in position, I realized that my legs were covered by army ants. I froze to look into the camera just as it clicked. Then I took off my pants and beat them on a tree. Just for fun, I'll post that photo in the show notes of this episode. You can see the look on my face as I'm covered in ants. Later that afternoon, it was time for the main event, the sweat bath. We all showed up in our bathing suits, about ten of us. Mark was heating up the rocks outside the temple. He carefully placed them in the hearth of the sweat bath as we all sat cross-legged on the wide benches that flanked it. Then he poured water slowly on the rocks. The steam went up to the ceiling and straight to the corners of the Corbeld Arch roofs, then down the walls and onto the backs of the benches. The people sitting back there, who thought they were the furthest away from the heat, howled in pain and some scrambled up and over us out the door. Not only did the sweat bath work great, but it distributed the steam in ways we would have never known without Mark's replication study. And of course, the coolest thing was that we had just fired up a sweat bath that hadn't been used in 1,200 years. Has that kind of thing ever happened before or since? Anything in Rome or the Middle East? I can't think of one. If any of you listeners know, share in the comments, please. Now, I'd like to say that that was the happy end of our Piedras Negras adventure, but it wasn't. The next morning we got up and hiked the 20 kilometers out to Mark's truck. But three hours into that four-hour walk, the forest around the trail had burnt to the ground. And it wasn't that way 48 hours earlier. The Chiapas fire had jumped the Usamacinta into Guatemala, and we were in the middle of it. There was no fire right there, but the smoldering ashes made the hundred degrees of that May afternoon feel like a hundred and thirty degrees. We could turn and run back to camp, but that was three hours and we were almost out of water. We could go forward, but that was to run the real risk of live fire. We decided we had no choice but to risk it, so breaking into a run, we followed the burnt trail. With about ten minutes to go, we could see the fire to our west, but it wasn't quite to us yet. We made it to Mark's truck and sped off. From my seat in the flatbed, I could see the smoke billowing up high into the sky. Okay, this is a good time for the last commercial break, and when I return, we'll get back to Palenque. Yes, it's another commercial of me promoting me. This time, it's an ask to support Archeoed through Patreon. I've discovered that a lot of my listeners don't know what Patreon is, so let me explain. Simply put, Patreon is a website that allows fans to financially support their favorite creators. Musicians, artists, comics, and podcasters like me. Like the NPR model, it allows for one-time donations or monthly charges on your credit card called sustaining memberships. Those sustaining memberships are wonderful because they create a monthly budget that creators can depend on and plan around. 
You can support ArchaeoEd with as little as $5 a month or as much as you like. The process is really very simple. Just make an account with Patreon and choose ArchaeoEd as your recipient. But you might be saying, but wait a second, ArchaeoEd is free. Why would I choose to pay for it? Because, again, just like NPR, quality programming doesn't exist without public support. I made this podcast on a lark, sitting in my closet during the pandemic. But now it has tens of thousands of fans and dozens of Patreon supporters. Archeoed's success is starting to prove that responsible, truthful portrayals of ancient history can be popular and financially viable. Aliens, ghosts, and white guys that built Atlantis are not the only things that history fans want to hear about. So why support Archeoed through Patreon? So I can have the financial resources to expand my reach and increase the audience. With your help, I can challenge the notion that only sensationalized versions of ancient history sell. It's easy. Just Google Patreon Archeoed and you're on your way. I'm betting on the fact that you would agree that Archeoed is at least as valuable to you as a cup of Starbucks once a month. So come on, put a little skin in the game and help me challenge those other strange versions of history. When we got back to Palenque, my one and only student volunteer had arrived, Kirk French. Today, Kirk is Dr. French, a professor at Penn State. He teaches the biggest anthropology class in the entire United States. It's called the Anthropology of Alcohol, and its nickname is Booze and Culture. Over 750 students attend his class every year. But back then, in 1998, he was an undergraduate at Texas State University. I met him while I was briefly teaching there. He wanted to go on a professor's dig in the Middle East, and he asked me how he could do it. I told him that most excavations were strapped for cash, and that if he offered to pay his own way and work for free, that professor might just give him a job and let him join the team. Four months later... He walked into my office again and gave me that very same pitch to work with me in Palenque. I couldn't very well invalidate my own advice to him, so I said yes. He arrived on May 19th, ready to work for me for one month. Alfonso kindly let him stay in the project house. None of the mapping was easy, but Kirk arrived at an especially tricky section. There was a windy road leading up to the ruins parking lot. It ascended the escarpment and ran right through an area called Group J. The sides of the road were in direct sunlight and super overgrown. The downhill sides were hiding the fact that there was a cliff right there with no guardrail. At the bottom of that cliff we found a wrecked van that no one had ever bothered to drag out of there. Like Group A, Group J was full of many more buildings than we were expecting. Merle's map had Group 4 there, right next to the parking lot, but then the rest of it 
was a big section that just said, unmapped but full of buildings. And it sure was. In the end, there were 84 buildings there that we mapped in. There was also a small creek that bubbled out of springs and then created a small waterfall at Group J's northern edge. Very pretty. Merle's map showed it as Bernasconi's Falls, but Rogelio swore the local name was Taquin Ha, so I went with that one. Kirk got a crash course in how to do everything, how to determine the size and corners of buildings, how to use the rod and theodolite, and how to enter the points into the survey software back at the project house. Entering the points every day from the field was a nightly task, and it could get laborious. But we had to do it to make sure we hadn't made an error while we were still in that area. That way, if we did, we could go back and reshoot it the next day. The map's accuracy was all about the stations where the machine would stand. Those had to be perfect. Establishing a new station for the machine to stand took a long time. We'd stick a five-inch nail into the ground where we wanted a new station to be, and then we'd very carefully shoot it in. Then we'd break down the machine in the tripod and set it up over the new nail. There was a sighting tube to see the nail, and we had to be perfectly over it, not just sort of, but dead center. Then we'd shoot back to the previous station, calculating its distance and position. The math had to work out perfect from both stations. If it didn't, we'd break it down and do it over again. That happened, and sometimes we'd do it three or even four times until we got it perfect. That could be 30 minutes or more than an hour. But that's how we kept the map so accurate. Entering the points at night was a double check on that accuracy. Then on the weekends, I'd migrate all of that data into AutoCAD and make the pretty versions of the map. That was necessary so I could show my bosses at ENA and important visitors our progress to date. There were also a lot of big snakes in Group J, but Kirk's East Texas upbringing made him accustomed to rattlesnakes and helped him not to freak out. It was important for us to stay calm and act fast when we saw them. We also lost Rogelio for a week of Group J because his mother got sick. Her illness was a lesson to me about how employment works in Chiapas. When you're the boss, you're more than that. You're the patron. No one in Naranjo had health insurance. Only the wealthiest in Mexico have that. When you need money for care or medicine, you borrow it from your patron. So I had to lend Rogelio the money and give him the time off to care for his mom. And not give, but lend and take it out of their pay later. This was for his pride, but more about the way I was ordered by Ina to handle worker compensation. If I paid the machete guys more than Ina's standard rate, I got in big trouble. Their weekly take-home pay was a ridiculous $35 a week and I was not allowed to give them a penny more. Even when I'd try to pay them more on the weekends for odd jobs, Chata would say, Stop spoiling the med. You're ruining my Indians. So, I was the patron, and they'd introduce me like that if they saw me outside of work. When I met Rogelio's mom, he said, Mom, 
this is my patron. It was awkward at times, but that's how it worked. I was their boss, but also expected to help them personally when emergencies came up. Barry left that week, and Kirk, Elizabeth, and I reached the area within Group J that was also called Group 4. It had been excavated by Ruse in the 1950s, and the famous Tablet of the Slaves had been found there. It was some sort of elite housing compound, later understood as the residence of a war captain named Chak Zutz. But now it was overgrown again and hidden behind a row of souvenir stands on the edge of the modern parking lot. With all of its exposed and consolidated architecture, we had to make a complex drawing of it. That took a few days, and those were unpleasant days because of a new challenge, one that I really don't like talking about. The sad truth is that the local vendors weren't allowed to use the park's bathrooms. Those were for tourists. So, Group 4 had become their bathroom. It was full of literal crap, toilet paper, and flies. The smell was overpowering, so we wore bandanas on our faces again. That sucked, but it was one more thing that I refused to let stop us, and we got the job done. That weekend, I had a welcome diversion. My sister Laura and nephew Rob came for a visit. It was also Moy's 75th birthday party. We ended up having an insane birthday party for Moises. It was at El Panchan and started out normal, with music, barbecue, and lots of beer. As the sun was going down, the party moved to a pool at the back end of the property. I didn't even know it was there. A friend of Moy's had built it and a few cabanas as his family's vacation home, but he lived in Villahermosa and let Moy use it when he wasn't there. I was going back to Moy's house to get something and met Chato on the trail. He was just in a bathing suit and eating a chicken leg. Moy's dogs were jumping around him trying to get the chicken. He casually took a pistol out of the back of his bathing suit and shot it in the air. The dogs scattered, and he just smiled and said, Stupid dogs. Chato was always armed, even in a bathing suit. So we moved the party to the pool and kept drinking. About 20 of us. When the sun went down, it seemed a good idea to turn it into skinny dipping. My sister had no problem with it. My teenage nephew looked less comfortable, but I really didn't give him many options. A thunderstorm hit, but we didn't stop. The lightning strikes were like flash photography, sudden snapshots of naked bodies running around the pool and newcomers doing strip teases. The flashes also showed that Moises was there sitting in a chair in a raincoat with a big grin on his face. At one point, I remember Elizabeth Corrin telling Alfonso that she wouldn't talk to him anymore until he put his pants on. In the morning, a bunch of us went out to get the things we left at the pool. For me, it was my sunglasses. Chato had left his knife, which was at the bottom of the pool. I found that puzzling, because he was naked. Was he clenching that knife between his butt cheeks? Well, Chato was always armed, no matter what. As we were leaving, Elizabeth came out of one of the cabanas, looking dazed and confused. I asked her what had happened, and she replied in a raspy voice, I think I shagged Alfonso last night. 
That party was sick. But that's just how we rolled back then. We worked hard, and we partied hard. I debated really telling that part about that party, but I figure, heck, if I'm going to tell the story, I might as well tell the whole thing, warts and all. I'm going to end part two right here, but I'll pick up where I left off next month. Part three will begin with that time that Elizabeth and I were held up at gunpoint in the jungle. Until then, this is Ed, signing off. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, produced, and distributed by me, Ed Barnhart. If you liked what you heard, then subscribe, like, share, comment, and do all those other things that I'm supposed to ask you to do. If you didn't, then don't do any of that stuff. And if you really liked it, support ArcheoEd through my Patreon account. I make these podcasts for free, but I am not opposed to financial support. Until next time, thanks for listening. All rights reserved. Copyright 2022.